When we think about the rapid evolution of technology, and more specifically, artificial intelligence, there are two main schools of thought. You're either in the camp of, it's all doom and gloom and the robots will steal our jobs and take over the world, or the opposite, utopian point of view, where technology will transform the world into a place where we all have cyborg superpowers and live more and work less. And common sense should land us somewhere in the middle. But the place I want to dig a bit deeper on in this episode is the workplace. Our jobs, careers, businesses, and for a lot of us over the past 18 months, our living rooms. It's where we spend most of our days, sitting at our desk, thinking, collaborating, building, making our contribution to the economy. And today I want you to step off that pessimistic pedestal of AI will kill us all. Will it take our jobs? Definitely. Will it create better ones for us on the other side of that? Definitely. If we're willing to adapt and upskill. We hear from renowned author and Stanford legend, Professor Eric Brynjolfsson, and how history can teach us a lot about how we need to approach business to unlock the power of AI. Um, in each case, the big gains only came once smart entrepreneurs and managers basically reinvented their industries. And my mate, futurist, author, and fellow co-creator of Australia's number one business show, The Rebound on Channel 9, Steve Sammartino joins us to give a glimpse of what the job board of 2030 will look like. The robots are taking over. Seriously, they are. They're taking lots of the crappy jobs, some of the dangerous ones, and even a few of the good ones. But there aren't that many bison hunters anymore. And I talk with James Johnson from Salesforce, one of the most valuable and influential companies on earth, about how they have balanced human and AI collaboration to the scale of over $200 billion. AI is not this uh, amorphous being that is coming to take all of our jobs. It is here to provide capability so we can do what we do well as humans even better. I'm speaking with James at the Salesforce Live Retail and Consumer Goods event on April 1st. And if you'd like to join us to talk about more of this, there are links to register at futuresandwich.com. But for now, let's dive in. My name is Tommy McCubbin, TV host, creative director, dad, and podcaster, and this is Future Sandwich, episode 25, Artificial Workforce, where we look at the evolution of business, now robots are part of the team. Now, before we get too deep, there's an enormous concept we struggle to wrap our heads around. Exponential. Now, this is important because it's an indicative demonstration of how technology will continue to develop and advance more and more, faster and faster, until the current state is unrecognisable. A quote from Albert Bartlett, a giant in the world of physics, the greatest shortcoming of the human race is the inability to understand the exponential function. Exponential growth is a hard concept for humans to grasp. Even for me, one of the basic examples is compound interest. One my economics teacher and parents told me about as a teenager, and unfortunately, I didn't listen at the time. Let's say I did listen and scraped together a thousand bucks and invested that at 5% interest and critically had left it in the account, it would have tripled by now. Look, it's no Apple stock, but hey, it's about being able to see the value in the growth model. Albert Einstein so eloquently put it, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it earns it. He who doesn't pays it. It is rare, yet it's everywhere. An example is if you think about photography. A century ago, photos were sacred moments of time which required big heavy equipment and expensive film and chemicals. Then around 60 years ago, cameras became more accessible. And then again, Kodak made it more cheaper 
And then digital cameras did away with the film altogether. And then this. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, today Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And now, as we know, we all have cameras in our pocket that can take 10 photos in a second. And then we flick them into the archive in the cloud without sparing a thought. And the same principles can be applied to artificial intelligence. We have all heard the saying that the equivalent computing power that got Apollo to the moon now fits in our pockets. So imagine what the equivalent computing power looks like in 60 years time. Will it just be a nanochip embedded in our heads? Well, that's a reality when we look at the advancements of brain-computer interfaces looks possible. We went deep on that in the latest episode of Future Sandwich Brainware. Check it out. Because not everything grows exponentially, we struggle to see the potential of big ideas. Unless you live in places like Silicon Valley and are surrounded by big visions or the hallways of science and math faculties. The point is, this is a frame of mind we need to have to be able to create or adapt with the evolving tech-powered workforce. This is Professor Eric Brynjolfsson who thinks to get the value, we need to blow everything up and start again. I think way too many people are unimaginative, intellectually lazy. And when they take AI, they basically say, what are we doing now? How can we make a machine do the same thing? Yeah. Maybe we'll save some costs, we'll have less labor. And yeah, you know, it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world to do, but it's really not leading to a quantum change in the way you do things. You know, when uh, when Jeff Bezos um, said, hey, we're going to use the Internet to change how bookstores work and we're going to use technology. He didn't go and say, OK, let's let's put a robot cashier where the human cashier is and leave everything else alone. That would have been a very lame way to automate a bookstore. He's like went from soup to nuts and said, let's just rethink it. We get rid of the physical bookstore. We have a warehouse. We have delivery. We have people order on a screen. And everything was reinvented. And that's been the story of these general purpose technologies all through history. And in, in, in my books, I write about like electricity and how for 30 years, there was almost no productivity gain from the electrification of factories a century ago. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not because electricity is a wimpy, useless technology. We all know how awesome electricity is. It's because at first, they really didn't rethink the factories. It was only after they reinvented them, and we describe how in the book, um, then you suddenly got a doubling and tripling of productivity growth. But it's the combination of the technology with the new business models, new business organization. That just takes a long time and it takes um, more creativity than most people have. Before electricity, there were basically steam engines or sometimes water wheels. And to power the machinery, you had to have pulleys and crankshafts. And you really can't make them too long because they'll, they'll break the torsion. So all the equipment was kind of clustered around this one giant steam engine. You can't make small steam engines either because of thermodynamics. So, so you have one giant steam engine, all the equipment clustered around it, multi-story. They have it vertical to minimize the distance as well as horizontal. And then when they did electricity, they took out the steam engine. They got the biggest electric motor they could buy from General Electric or someone like that. And nothing much else changed. <laughs> It took until a generation of managers retired or died 30 years later that people started thinking, wait, we don't have to do it that way. You can make electric motors, you know, big, small, medium. You can put one with each piece of equipment. There's this big debate if you read the management literature between what they call group drive versus unit drive, where every machine would have its own motor. Well, once they did that, once they went to unit drive, those guys won the debate. Um, then you started having a new kind of factory, which is sometimes 
spread out over acres, single story, and each piece of equipment had its own motor. And most importantly, they weren't laid out based on who needed the most power. They were laid out based on what is the workflow of materials, <laughs> you know, assembly line, let's have it go from this machine to that machine to that machine. Once they rethought the factory that way, huge increases in productivity. It was just staggering. People like Paul David have documented this in their research papers. And, uh, you know, I, I think that there's a that is a lesson you see over and over. It happened when the steam engine changed manual production. It's happened with the computerization. You know, people like Michael Hammer said, "Don't automate, obliterate." Um, in each case, the big gains only came once smart entrepreneurs and managers basically reinvented their industries. I mean, one other interesting point about all that is that during that reinvention period, you often actually not only don't see productivity growth, you can actually see a slipping back. Measured productivity actually falls. I just wrote a paper with Chad Severson and Daniel Rock called the productivity J-curve, which basically shows that in a lot of these cases, you have a downward dip before it goes up. And that downward dip is when everyone's trying to like reinvent things. And you could say that they're creating knowledge and intangible assets, but that doesn't show up on anyone's balance sheet. It doesn't show up in GDP. So it's as if they're doing nothing. Like take self-driving cars. There have been hundreds of billions of dollars spent developing self-driving cars. And basically no chauffeur has lost his job, no taxi driver. I guess there's a bunch of spending and no real yeah. consumer benefit. Now, they're doing that in the belief, I think the justified belief, that they will get the upward part of the J-curve and there will be some big returns. But in the short run, you're not seeing it. That's happening with a lot of other AI technologies, just as it happened with earlier general purpose technologies. And it's one of the reasons we're having relatively low productivity growth lately. I, you know, mm -hmm. As an economist, one of the things that disappoints me is that as eye-popping as these technologies are, you and I are both excited about some of the things they can do, the economic productivity statistics are kind of dismal. We actually, believe it or not, have had lower productivity growth in the past about 15 years than we did in the previous 15 years, in the 90s and early 2000s. And so that's not what you would have expected if, if these technologies were that much better. But I think we're in, a, in kind of a, a long J-curve there. Personally, I'm optimistic. We'll start seeing the upward tick um, maybe, maybe as soon as next year. But um, uh, the past decade has been a bit disappointing if you thought there's a one-to-one -one relationship between cool technology and higher productivity. Now, if you'd like to get the full interview, I have a link to Lex Friedman's chat with him at futuresandwich.com, one of my favorite pods. It took a generation to die out before electricity could truly impact business systems. Now, innovation does require new thinking. It also requires some leeway to have its necessary failures so we can learn, evolve, and build. Then comes the new business models and the new job titles. Our next guest is Australia's leading futurist and co-creator and host with me on Australia's number one business show, The Rebound on Channel 9. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Sammartino. Thanks, Tommy. Great to be back on Future Sandwich. This is a really important topic. The robots are taking over. Seriously, they are. They're taking lots of the crappy jobs, some of the dangerous ones, and even a few of the good ones. But there aren't that many bison hunters anymore. I mean, all jobs eventually get replaced by tech. It's plows for farmers, machines for labourers, and now the microchip is coming for the white collars. But the story of new jobs, that doesn't create good fear-based journalism. Not good for the clickbait, that one. So, what about a counter-mind jam? Some of the new jobs recently created. 
UX designers, app developers, drone pilots, digital community managers, Airbnb hosts, Bitcoin miners, search engine optimization, data security specialists. And in the future, the near future, some really interesting jobs. What about robot ethicists, carbon footprint analysts, data commodities broker, digital memory archivist, privacy advisor, NFT curator, crypto energy consultant, or even an off-world habitat designer. And this is just a tiny sample from the Samatron's mind. Humans invent new jobs and new industries every time we invent a new technology. We always surround the new thing with people. It's like a force of gravity. People aggregate around money and commerce. The good news, though, is that the really important skills of the future are the really human ones. First, we replace muscle with machines, and now we're replacing left-brain logic with artificial intelligence. And what we truly need in the future is creativity, empathy, and humanity. Look, even if a robot could hold my hand and comfort me, I'm not so sure that I'd want that. And I reckon that the jobs that'll be high-paying will be the ones because a human is doing it, even if a robot could. And there will be winners and losers in all this. There always is. But it's never been more possible to upskill, reskill, or even get new skills in the history of humanity. And mostly for free. You know, the thing we get this time is the dignity of choice. I spent the first 15 years of my career in the marketing industry, more specifically in creative advertising. And one of the big reasons why I'm not making ads anymore is the landscape has simply changed too much. One company that is redefining marketing as we know it and rewriting the next chapter of how brands talk with their customers is Salesforce, the biggest company you may have never heard of, certainly if you live outside the world of enterprise. With a casual market cap of $200 billion and over 50,000 staff worldwide, they inform how some of the world's biggest brands, ranging from Coke to Adidas to Woolworths, manage and add value to their millions of customers around the world. At the core of the offering is an AI platform called Einstein, which not only does the work of thousands of people every second, it's transformed the fortunes of its clients. Coming in from the wonderful sunny coast where it is glorious and sunny. Well, I don't get to say it that often, but it is pretty sunny down here in Melbourne, so I'll... Uh... I'll take that today. I caught up with James Johnson, who's Director of Retail Strategy at Salesforce, to find out about the role AI plays in their offering and what the outlook is for a company built very differently to companies from the past. So today we've been talking about, you know, we want to bust the myth that AI is going to take our jobs. We think that is just not a productive conversation at Future Sandwich. We need to flip the script and we need to turn around and start saying, this is actually the best opportunity to do the best work humans are capable of. We just rattled off a few um, interesting job titles of the future. I think the reason why I'm really keen to talk to you is because Salesforce, you are part human, part machine, aren't you? Fundamentally, this, the service and the products you offer your clients is this incredible cyborg hybrid of super intelligent people with enormously powerful artificial intelligence driven technology. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it is. So, you know, we see some really practical use cases around uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. We call those at Salesforce Einstein. So great name for a range of those capabilities. 
But for me, it's really important to have two lenses to the equation. It's about how do businesses get value, whether that is you know, growing their sales or delivering a better experience for their customers. And the flip side is, well, what's the benefit for the consumer? And typically it's about help me find that right product, help me have a better experience, help the business understand more about me. And artificial intelligence means that businesses can scale that much more effectively. They can do it rather than one-to-one with the old piece of pen and paper at the corner store. Suddenly, you can have an experience that can be scaled uh, across the country and across the world. And do you reckon a relationship suffers when essentially a brand talks to a customer and it's obviously an automated message or a scaled message or a data-driven message? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, consumers are very savvy now. They understand that there are tools and capabilities that businesses use uh, in the way that you just mentioned. So you need to be authentic. You need to be genuine with it. Um, but at the same time, consumers also expect that we have this information or some, some data or some uh, understanding of them. So they expect you to be able to deliver an experience that shows that you know who they are, you know their preferences, you know where they are in their shopper journey, so deliver that experience that is relevant for them. So there's nothing worse than getting something that's completely inappropriate based on what you should know about me as a business. So consumers are pretty savvy now and they picked that up pretty quickly. Hello, first name. We love those emails. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm interested in Einstein. You know, giving technology, particularly in artificial intelligence, by its nature, a face and a name, and, and obviously we're all familiar with who Albert Einstein was. What does that help for you? Um, does it help you sell it? Does it help you kind of get behind it? Yeah, I think uh, there's, there's an element here around you know, not being concerned or apprehensive about this. To your earlier point, um, you know, AI is not this uh, amorphous being that is coming to take all of our jobs. It is here to provide capability so we can do what we do well as humans even better. So to the example we spoke about before, it's really saying, well, how do I know more about that shopper that is in my store so that I can be a human and provide a better real experience? And so when you, some of your case studies at Salesforce where you've gone into a brand and you've rolled out or continue to roll out a platform for them are you seeing the nature of their workforce kind of adapt around the new technologies and processes yeah i think to to your earlier point you know there's new roles and new um, skill sets that are evolving to really maximize uh, a lot of those so if i look around the, the product recommendations that i mentioned earlier it's around you know there's still refinements around tweaking the business rules around understanding and testing and learning and optimizing what goes on but it's being able to do that at a particular scale. So that is a new role that five years ago probably didn't exist in terms of someone being able to interpret those insights and understand, well, how do I tweak them and how do I refine the shopper journey? So that's one example. Uh, if we look more broadly, you can see uh, across the landscape businesses like Woolworths who are investing $50 million uh, in terms of enabling and retraining their teams because they acknowledge that e-commerce is changing the way that shopping is happening in their stores. So they are um, you know, building new skills, building new capabilities and you know, making that human, which I think is a really important point. I think some of the impact Salesforce has had at some big companies is huge. Can you give us a couple of kind of your, your the, the, the poster boy case studies just to kind of get an idea about the impact you guys can have not only from uh, improving the experience, but actually hitting the bottom line as well. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, given we're talking about artificial intelligence and, and Einstein specifically, a great local example would be Super Retail Group. 
So they use Einstein and Einstein now drives around about 20% of all of their online revenue. Um, as many businesses have, they've seen phenomenal growth through 2020 from a, a digital commerce perspective. Uh, but historically, around 12 or 18 months ago, they saw that Einstein was contributing around 3.5% of their online revenue. And through really scaling those capabilities, using teams that we mentioned before to to really build and test and learn and understand when they can find those sort of business rules, they're now seeing over 20% of their online revenue uh, coming directly from Einstein product recommendation. From 3.5% to 20%, they're results that not only are fabulous, but they transform the shape of it. So I hope this episode has reframed how you view AI as it continues to integrate and advance in our lives. And you view it with optimism, but understand this kind of daunting mountain we need to climb to unlock its full potential. This has been another episode of Future Sandwich. I'd like to send a big thank you to James Johnson from Salesforce. As I mentioned, you can catch the Salesforce Live Retail and Consumer Goods event on April 1st. I not only talk with James, I meet with trailblazers from Coca-Cola Amatil, Super Retail Group, Barbecues Galore, and Mecca. If you want to see how the retail industry has accelerated out of the pandemic, check it out. Simply register at salesforce.com forward slash live ANZ. And the full interview from Lex's talk with Eric is in the show notes at futuresandwich.com. Now don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at futuresandwich.com and follow us on all the socials. We're always keen to get your feedback and ideas for the next show. And if you haven't already, check out The Tech Files, my latest show on YouTube. It covers all the mergers, acquisitions and IPOs you need to know about in tech this week. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again in the not too distant.